welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. As we have been saying over the last few weeks, these next three weeks, we are looking at the whole area of mental health. Uh, It's a subject that very often the church doesn't mention and it's something that we really want to talk about. We could be incredibly super spiritual and say that we plan to start it this Sunday on the back of Mental Health Week, but that would not be telling you the truth. It was really providential that uh, we're starting it this week and the Mental Health Week was last week. When Greg Boyd, uh, NZ1 presenter, died a few weeks ago, a few months ago from suicide, it, it shook everybody. He was a young man who had, it ev- had everything and uh, he just decided to take his own life. It's, but it did st- start a debate across our nation. And suicide in, in New Zealand is a real, real problem. In 2017, over nearly 700 people committed suicide. The, the youth suicide between the ages of about 12, 13, and 20 is the highest of any developed country in the world. It's, it is by far the highest per, per capita, and it is a real problem for our, our people, for our nation. They would say, statistics would say that more than 20 to 30, maybe 40% of us here tonight would struggle with some mental health issues, some anxiety or depression, and uh, those ultimately, many of them leading to suicide, and Christians are not exempt in any way. And so over these three weeks, we want to talk about this whole area. We want to talk about anxiety, depression, and a number of other things. And also, we want to talk about suicide. However, around every suicide, there is always a story. There's always a tragic story, uh, which words cannot express. When you hear on the news that someone has committed suicide, or when you hear online that someone has committed suicide, that is just a statistic. But behind every statistic, there is an incredibly sad story. There's a real story of people left behind, of families, of mums and dads and sons and daughters or spouses. And tonight, as happened this morning, uh, Sue, Sue Powell, has, is being incredibly brave, and she is going to tell her story around suicide. Sue's husband, Pete, took the decision six years ago to take his own life. And so Sue has amazingly agreed to talk about that whole whole time and where they're at now as a family. And she's gonna just, she's gonna talk to us and we're gonna have a dialogue and we invite you to be part of that. I just wanna say at the outset though, this is Sue's story. This is somewhat raw. She will say it as as it is, what she felt, what she feels. This is not some theological or biblical explanation around suicide. It will be open and truthful. It will be sad. It will be Sue's opinion. It will not be sugar-coated, but it is an invitation to listen to her thoughts. And so I just want to make that clear at the the outset that Sue's going to answer questions and talk into issues and she has the freedom to say whatever she wishes in that context. I think so. Try it. Is it? So thank you for doing this. It's okay. Incredibly brave. We survived this morning. We'll have a go again tonight. Good. So start off, Sue. Um, tell us a bit about your own background, your own Christian background. 
Now that you do that to me, don't you? Sorry. So I grew up in a strong Christian family. Um, when I was 25, I went to Bible college, and then later on I went to YWAM and was involved there. I was very interested in mission, and I ended up in Australia on staff. Um, I was asked if I would be a nanny for some people who I was working with on staff, and immediately I said to them I needed to go and ask God what he thought. Very clearly, he told me that I was to go back home to New Zealand as he had a man for me. I was now 30 and well and truly felt I was on the shelf. <laughs> I returned to New Zealand at the end of 86 and in February of 87 started working with youth and the man God had for me was part of the staff. Pete asked me out in April and on our first date I asked him if he was interested. You're not, you're not, you're not backward in asking things, are you? No. Because if he wasn't, I needed to move on because God said that he had a man for me. And <laughs> in April, um, we, um, in August, sorry, we got engaged and we got married in December. And in 1990, we went back to college um, where Pete studied and I worked to put him through. Good, strong Christian upbringing. Absolutely. Sound as a pound, believe in Jesus, everything good decision to get married. Tell us a bit about Pete's background. Pete had a com completely different so, um, upbringing, didn't he, really? Yes, yeah, so he um, had come from a, as he would put it, a heathen background. Um, he had nothing, no input in his life, Christian-wise. Um, he was a, um, a crazy hippie. He lived and he built and lived in his own house truck, and it was um, powered by coal gas. Um, he um, could ride an exercycle and he could fire, eat, um, and he helped out with, I think it's called the Whirling Brothers um, Circus in the old days. He was part of that. Um, so he was very colourful and um, at the age of 27 he became a Christian. What was his conversion? So he lived in Waihi. Um, he went over there and um, he got involved in being a carpenter in a workshop there and um, while he was there, there was quite a move of the Spirit of God over Waihi in those years and quite a number of his friends and he became Christians. He would listen to Faith for Today, which was on the radio in those days, um, at 10 o'clock in the morning and he would listen to it religiously, um, but not particularly because it was Christian, but because he just loved to hear and God spoke to him very clearly through the verse that says that um, he knows when a sparrow falls from the sky um, and he's vitally interested. And due to that verse, Pete gave his heart to the Lord. So everything started off really fine in the sense as you met, you got married, uh, we'll come on to children in a moment. You uh, felt a call to Bible college, and he went, how long did he do at Bible college? He just did a year at college, and then um, one of the lecturers said to him after the year um, that there was an opportunity for him to be an associate pastor at the Baptist Church in Point Chevalier, so we applied for the job and we got it. So you have two daughters? I've got two daughters. Um, Becca's 27 and Sarah's 25. And Sarah was with us this morning? She was with us this morning, yes. She didn't like it when I said that she was unemployed. So, 
Oh, God. Um, <laughs> just talk us through, walk us through those early years of ministry. Um, the early years were great, actually. Um, how, how did you end up in a Baptist? And you just told me you were from a brethren background. Oh, well, my mother was brethren. Oh, that's okay. Yes, but then. then she met a Presbyterian, and then they both became Baptists. <laughs> so confusion's been part of your life. All. <laughs> <laughs> but so. my hair is very short, as you can see. So, you know, I'm not from that background. Sorry, just walk us through. Sorry. So, where were we? I got no idea. <laughs> Talk us through your early years of ministry in the um, Baptist Church. So we were at Point Chevalier for two and a half years. They ran out of, Every time we went to a church, they would run out of money. So they ran out of money, and so Pete couldn't be paid. But he, he helped move the church from a side street to the main street in Point Chevalier, which is where it is now, um, and he helped build that got rid of the architect because he said architects were just rubbish and um, he knew how to build because he was a carpenter and so he took over that build and then when that was finished they couldn't afford to pay us we got called to Whangamata Baptist and he worked there with Robbie Howard um, and we were there for two and a half years and we ran out of money um, or they did and Pete began to do lawns and then while he was involved with the church there um, he went to a conference, and Bob Sinclair was there, and he um, pastored a church in Carfia, and he was coming to the end of his time there, and he said to Pete while he was at this conference, it would be a really good idea if you went to Carfia as a pastor. And so Pete came home from Carfia and said, I mean, from the conference, and he said to me, darling, what do you think about going to Carfia? Well, I didn't really think much about that, because I didn't really think much about Carfia, and I'd been there once. So I was not happy, and I was quite digging my toes in, and poor guy, he was thinking, okay, so that's off the, off the uh, <coughs> table. Anyway, he went away for a couple of days for some reason. Mail came in, it was this letter from Bob, and I happened to read it. I don't know why, but I did. And Bob was so passionate about what happens in Carfia and the ministry there, and God just did something in my heart. And so we ended up in Carfia for seven and a half years. And then we went to... But it was a, it was a, that was a difficult time for you. Um, difficult time for... In, in some, it was a, it was a it was, good time, but it was a challenging time. It was a challenging time because it was a different culture. It's very high um, Māori population, and for us that was kind of different to be the minority, and it's good to have experienced that. Um, and I learned Māori there um, a little bit. Um, but, and I learned the culture, and, um, but it was kind of isolating. I homeschooled my children. Um, I was involved in Bible sc in schools in the school, but it was kind of isolating for me. But Pete absolutely loved it. He came alive in that place. Um, he was involved in St John Ambulance. He drove for them. He was a bit of a cowboy. He loved to put the lights on, you know, as much as he could. The siren and everything, you know. So he was an absolute... Uh, he, he just was so community orientated and involved in everything in Kafia, and I think that if we'd stay there, maybe he would still be here. Still with us. Hmm. And then. And then we went. I felt that we were coming to the end of our time there, due to things like domestic violence next door to us, that was kind of unbearable to live under. Um, and the people saw us as being interfering of that situation when we were trying to free the woman that was being beaten. 
um, and it made it unpleasant and um, I just said, oh, I think we need to go and in the end Pete applied for Northwest Baptist Church and he got the pastorate um, and in 2005 we moved to Hamilton and also Becca started school because she used to sit under the desk the last year of our time or the last six months of our time in Kafia, she'd sit under the desk and cry and say, I just want to go to school. So, you know, that didn't really sit well with me and I thought, well, you know, she needs to go to school. Mm. Through this time, you, uh, Pete started this struggle with burnout. So he was, he was struggling with burnout. Um, I could see that. Um, he was getting a little bit grumpy with people, short with people. Um, he wasn't always tolerant of them. Um, and he would call a spade a spade at the best of times, but he began to call it more clearly to them. Um, and then they called him to Northwest, and I still felt maybe that, um, yeah, he needed a, a break. But anyway, he went there, gung-ho, full-on, loved it, loved the people. The people loved him. He was kind of very youth-orientated, drawing them in, um, he just loved them, he loved to mentor them. Um, and after some time, though he was getting grumpy with them and a bit short with them, and I just said to the leadership, he needs a sabbatical. Was um, Pete on medication at this time? No, no. Was there a, a, things got worse in the sense of burnout? Would you say burnout became depression? Yes, definitely. Um, he, he became, more dark, and but it didn't really set in until after he had a sabbatical. Describe Pete's slide into depression. So he went on sabbatical for three months, and during that time he worked really hard. Like sabbatical is rest, <clears throat> but he didn't really particularly rest. He worked hard. He wanted to get back into the role. He wanted to be good in good health. Um, and so he went for counselling and he um, did lots of exercise and he really built himself up. But when it came to him going back, they didn't think he was well enough to be taken back and so they asked him not to and asked for his resignation. So really, this is when Pete was really slipping into depression and, uh, yeah. He became... Absolute, he was devastated when they asked for him not to come back. It broke his heart um, and he went home that day and from that time on he went downhill for the next four years. Would you say that that was probably one of the, when you look back, you think that was probably the, the turning point? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it just, yeah. And, and he went back to carpentry and hated it because he said Jesus was a carpenter. So. But you were saying, I remember we were chatting about this, you said this was a, one of the first times that you were financially stable in your life, <coughs> and uh, it was a good time in that sense, but Pete couldn't see past the, the depression and, and the burnout, that he couldn't see the reality of the situation. Yes, we were well off for the first time, um, and um, yeah, but he, and, and the job he was doing, he was working for Habitat for Humanity and he's working on people's homes who were not able to afford to have people come in and fix them. And so he was working with people who were down, um, depressed, not happy, which, 
yeah. And so I'd say to him, isn't it great? You've got them one-on-one. You can go to them and you can talk with them and share Jesus with them. But he missed the boat completely. He was so depressed. He didn't see that this was the ideal opportunity to evangelize these, these people who desperately needed it because he was so desperately depressed himself. He saw his, his identity was caught up in his role as pastor. I'll come to that. You would say, would, would Pete talk to you about this or would you have to sort of drag it out of him or we'll come on to what it was like in the house, but would, would he share this depression? No, not really. Um, and I, I guess I didn't ever really label it until he had gone. Um, kind of I'm a little bit thick to pick things up, really. Um, so, yeah, um, I look back now and I know that he was depressed but I was so much in survival mode because he was getting so frustrated. He would take his frustration out on me and because I was the closest to him and I appreciate what that, I don't excuse it, but he was taking out things on me and so I was just, he would say something that he was feeling and he would throw it at, at me in a negative way and I would have to, I literally had to tell myself the truth and walk either tell him that that's not true or walk away and tell myself the truth just to survive. Sometime after Peter died, you found something in his diary, that he, in his Bible, I should say, that he'd written. Can you read that for us? Would you mind? <coughs> so these are Pete's own words. I live in quiet desperation, in an atmosphere of quiet, discouraging discouragement. I am cared for well, well enough to keep me in life, but not alive. On life support, massive input, ventilated, medicated, nourished, but not living. Jailed in paradise, home detention. Life is a bitch. I long to die. Both then and now those are incredibly powerful words. They were a haunted man, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He was. He was a deeply depressed man. <clears throat> One of the things that you've we've talked about over this over the season when you agreed to talk tonight was one of the things that you said was that Peter's a pastor. He he wanted people to be open and vulnerable and honest and share with them. But you said it, and it really hit me, you said he never lived out of his values. He wanted, he expected other people to be like that, but not himself. Can you just <laughs> explain a little bit more what you meant by that? So he w- wanted everybody that he was interacting with to share their deepest feelings, but he, he wasn't sharing his feelings. Um, I heard a... A sentence the other day that said expression is the opposite of depression and so he, he, he wasn't even expressing with me what he was feeling the, the deepest parts of his heart and he wasn't <coughs> actually being himself with other people either um, he needed to be more honest and to be more vulnerable um, because that, that's what solves problems um, and to realise that his mess that was going on inside him is actually the message but yeah it's just when you're in that depression I don't it's just hard to come out of it Mm. 
I think one of the things that hit me when you said that was, as a church, we talk a lot about values and those things, how we should live our life. But it's so easy to talk about it and not to do it. Mm. Absolutely. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's a bit of a, warm, well, a challenge, let's put it like that, to us all. It's easy to talk about having these values, about openness, integrity, etc. But if we don't live by them, then there's, there's a cost to be paid. I always remember growing up with um, the pastor at Central, now what was his name? can't remember, but he, something happened in his life, and I don't know what it was even, but it was life-changing for this pastor, and it absolutely brought him to his knees, and I'm not saying anything about you, Chris, but that man's ministry took off on a new level once mm. he began to share the hardships that he was dealing with and showing that he was a real man, that he, was, that he hurt, that he bled when he cut. Yeah. I think that's probably, you see that a lot in people when they go through certain things that the ministry completely changes and completely is something completely far more powerful yeah. and more different. <laughs> Let's just start to again build this picture. Things at home, as you said, were not good. You said you had to um, walk on eggshells and this was an incredibly lonely time for you. Yeah. And um, the girls. Well, the brunt of it too. Um, Becca eventually moved out, um, went flatting, because she just couldn't stand it anymore. Um, but even in that, you know, like I was still a little bit treading more to myself too, so she went and and that kind of was a bit hard. And But Sarah just, I don't know, she let it just go all out, go over really. Mm, it was a hard time. And you said that a place of solitude for yourself was, or a place of, place of safety was your work. Mm. And you, you threw yourself into work and worked incredibly hard. Well, I worked at the Central Baptist <laughs> Childcare and I was there for eight and a half years and the last four of those um, before he died, that just became my refuge. Um, I would go to work just to get away and come home and wonder what on earth I was going to get, um, whether I was going to get something said or just see him sitting in his chair, his lazy boy, he would um, have a blanket over him just sitting there, or I'd go upstairs and he'd be lying in bed. Um, at the funeral, um, I started the funeral off and sang the song by Chasing Cars. Um, if you would just lie here with me and forget the world. Um, and I used to wonder, and sometimes you know, because you still have some what if, um, like a guilt. Um, if I would have just gone up and seen him lying on the bed and just laying with him and talked things through with him, um, but I didn't. And because I was too busy trying to, to survive, trying to um, keep myself safe, I suppose, and I'd think, well, if I lay there, maybe he would say something that was a bit negative. Um, and also I was running a home and so I was busy... Um, having to go and cook tea and stuff like that. But um, another thing that I shared this morning is that he would wear, he had a, a camouflage cap, a camouflage sweatshirt and camouflage <coughs> pants. Um, and he would wear them regularly. Um, and he would say, he'd walk into a room and he'd say, you can't see me. So that was just, there was lots of, if you know, if you, lots of red flags, missed them. 
Have you anything to say to anyone here tonight who might be in a similar situation to yourself? Or going down that pathway? Um, if you've got someone in your, who's close to you who's like that, um, you know, look up stuff, read about it, try and help them through. Um, I don't know, it's hard to say when you... Um, Jan gave me the book called Living with the Black Dog, um, and that was very helpful. Um, and suddenly I realised that actually my daughter, who's 25, has been suffering through depression in the last 10 days, and I actually hadn't really nailed that and picked it up. And then I began to question her and stuff, and then she started to open up more for me. So I encourage you to, you know, to talk it out, to ask the hard questions. And Pete would push me away a lot when I was trying to delve because I, I think I, I was, to a degree. Um, he would tell me that I was being necessary um, and push me away. That was his way of explaining his feelings. So you have to push through those. You have to push through the nasty words and all of that and gently come back and just say, yes, but I need, I love you, I want to help you. Please, you know, talk. <coughs> Describe the days leading up to and after suicide um, so in July 2012 we went on holiday for a week and it was a lovely time we had bike rides taking the boat out on the lake coffee at the local cafe and snuggly fires in the evenings just the two of us we returned from holiday and on the Monday the 16th of July I returned to work it was pouring with rain and blowing a gale, so Pete snuggled down as the job he was to do that day was outside. I kissed him goodbye. I arrived home about 4.30 that day and I asked Sarah where Dad was and she said, he's at work. And I said, no, he's not. He never went to work. The weather was too bad. I went upstairs and he wasn't in bed. That's odd. His car's in the garage. Pete didn't do walk. His shoes were accounted for. Alarm bells started to ring. Maybe Becca and Derek had come and picked him up to go and check out a house that they were looking to buy. They finally text back and know he wasn't with them. He wasn't visiting his dad or his sisters either. During this time, I kept texting him. The girls went onto Facebook asking if anyone had seen him. I texted others he knew. After all avenues had been exhausted, I stood at the kitchen bench and I stilled myself. God told me, I have him. He's with me. Wow. The peace that came over me was incredible. But I knew I couldn't say this to anyone, not yet. The police came, friends came, people searched, <coughs> night came, still raining and windy as had been all day. Sarah and I lay on mattresses in the lounge and I kept texting Pete, no answer. We didn't sleep much, we were reminded of something that Pete had said back in March when he was very upset over an issue. Something big is coming, something big is coming, something really big and you're all going to regret it. At the time I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. He would elaborate, he wouldn't elaborate and he quietly fumed. Is this what he meant? asked Sarah as we lay on the lounge floor that night. The next day, a larger search took place and at 11am on the 17th, he was found. He had gone. 
My girls were devastated. It broke my heart when the first thing Sarah said was, he'll never walk me down the aisle. He'd walk Becca down in March. Watching my two girls absorb this news was overwhelming. I felt a little like I cheated. I knew he'd gone. Pete talked about it. And you know, some, I think when I was growing up or in the 70s and 80s, I always used to have that adage, oh, those who talk about it won't do it, mm -hmm. which is rubbish, mm -hmm. absolute rubbish. Yeah. Pete talked about it. Did you think he would do it? No, never. No, he, he had talked about it before when we were first going together, that he had felt really lonely and didn't like life and was going to run, jump in front of a train in Seddon Road. But I didn't take it on board. I thought he was just being a drama queen. Yeah, the, amazingly, the more, report, more studies they, they do on, on suicide and this whole area, actually people start talking about it in their teens and they carry it out 25, 30 years later. This is not something that we need to ignore in young people, or mustn't ignore in young people. <coughs> it's something that we need to be incredibly diligent about all the way through. Absolutely, yeah. Pete's grandmother committed suicide, hadn't she? Yeah, when Pete was a young boy, his um, grandmother used to come and annoy the living daylights out of his mother, and I think she was, well, she was, she had mental health issues, and she would frequently say, oh, I just don't want to live anymore, I'm going to take my life, and one day she said it, and Gloria, um, Pete's mum, said, well, just go and do it, and she did. So Gloria had to live with that, and... The kids all had to live with that. In the events shortly after that, <coughs> um, both your girls responded in different ways, didn't they? One of them wanted to talk about it and talked about it, and the other one wanted to talk about it but didn't. Mm -hmm. And you were, tell us what, how that worked itself out. Because um, Becca was married now and living away from home um, and she didn't like coming home because we still, we still live in the same home that we've been living in ever since before he died. Um, and so she found it hard to come home, whereas Sarah and I, we just got on with it because that was our home. So she didn't really like coming home. Um, and if we talked about it, she would kind of get uncomfortable, whereas Sarah and I had each other and the, we talked about it all the time, so it wasn't unusual for us. And so, um, yeah, Becca, um, I wished I'd remembered to ask her for it, but she wrote a poem about it um, that she would, like me and Sarah and I, we would happily in, engage with somebody if they, if they wanted to talk about Pete and how he had died and stuff, we would quite, quite happily engage. <coughs> Becca wouldn't, but it wasn't that she didn't want to, but she said she wanted people to talk to her about it. She wanted them to instigate. And so she wrote a poem and she'd say, in the poem, it's something to the effect where I looked into their eyes and I was longing and longing to pull out for them to start to talk about my dad and they wouldn't. So she took that on board and got hurt about it. But for me, I would just like, I would say to people, you know, I talk about him any, any chance I got because I just longed to keep his memory alive. Just because you take your life doesn't mean to say that your life wasn't precious, and he was, he was amazing. He was a mentor to, to, to so many people. He, people came to Jesus because of him. Mm. 
Something you mentioned this morning, which we hadn't talked about. Uh, in hindsight, you talked about uh, like there was a spirit of death upon him. Yeah. Um, another thing too that um, is linked with that is that um, in the hardship of this time that I was experiencing, I kind of had an inkling that he wasn't long for this world, and I didn't know how that that would, you know would work out, um, but I had the sense that, and I guess I really believe God is an amazing gentleman, and to me, he's been amazing how he has, you know, shared with me about things, and I kind of had the sense in my spirit that he wouldn't live long, um, but also, Sarah and I, looking back and talking about it, have said that there was a smell about him, and it wasn't that he didn't shower or anything, but it was that because he did, he's very fastidious in fact, but he had this smell of death about him. And we had plants, I had two punga in the backyard and they began to lose, their fronds died off. No matter what we did to try and make them, and this was even when Pete was alive, and no matter what we did to try and make them come alive, they were all dying off, two particular pungas. Um, and after he died, they both sprouted again. So. I think that the spiritual realm of all of this is even more complicated, well, not complicated because God's not complicated, but is even more amazing than what we give it credit for. Mm. Did God let you down? No, definitely not, no. No resentment to him? No, because God had shown me that he had a man for me and this man was for me, um, prior to that I'd been involved in Youth of the Mission and. God had shown me really strongly in that time that there was a situation where I felt that, well, not a situation, I had a feeling that I was never quite okay. My dad would say to me, oh, you could do better. And I kind of had this idea, and so that was my picture of God, that um, I could do better. And God showed me very clearly while I was involved with Youth of the Mission that um, I was his okay child. And um, so there was, I was certainly not, you know, brimming over with confidence when I met Pete, but I was certainly a lot more confident than I was prior to meeting him. Um, I was very grateful for that. And I believe that God put Pete in my life and he in my life. He built me up in, in, in confidence as well. It was a two-way thing. But I was the man, um, I was the woman for that man for such a time as that. My girls were the girls for that man such a time as that. And we gave him a life longer than what he would have had if we weren't in it. Incredibly powerful. We're going to close, going to wrap up in a couple of moments. We could keep talking endlessly. We always, this morning we talked about all the things that we left out. <laughs> and we'll do the same after. We haven't got around to doing that. Just couple more questions. What advice do you have for people here today who are somewhere along this continuum, maybe anxious, maybe depressed, maybe have thought about suicide, maybe even planned it and know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it? What advice do you have? You have to talk. Um, and I think that we as Christians um, want to put on a facade that we're, we're okay, we've got it all together, because that's what you've got to do, because, you know, Jesus is in your heart, so surely you must have it all together. 
but we don't. And we all need to be completely honest with each other and say, you know, I really don't have it together and um, can we talk or can I find somebody to talk with? And you really, if you're keeping it inside, you probably feel like you're being very brave, but you're not. You're being silly and bravery means being courageous and walking out of that and saying, I'm going to tell you that I'm really struggling here and I want your acceptance. So you've got to be careful who you talk to because people can be cruel. But hopefully in the body of Christ you can know the people that you can go to and just say, I'm really struggling, can you please help me? One more question which I'll come to in a couple of moments. Could the musicians come and join us please? Um, just one thing, um, I was reading today, um, I am reading the book called the, the Choice by Edith Eager. Now she was an Auschwitz survivor and I wrote this down today. She said, time doesn't heal. That's so glibly thrown out there. It's what you do with the time. Healing is possible when we choose to take responsibility, when we choose to take risks, and finally, when we choose to release the wound to let go of the past or the grief. That wasn't me, that was her. When we started to discuss this well, a number of weeks ago, a couple of three months ago, that we were going to do this mental health series, a number of people said, was, what are our aims, what are our goals, what are we trying to achieve over this, this period? And we, we came to the conclusion that what we wanted to achieve was we wanted people to be able to talk about this. We wanted people to have permission to say it's okay to talk about feeling suicidal. It's okay to talk about being anxious and being depressed and worried about the state of mind that that we come and break some of the stigma, come and break some of the shame, come and break some of the guilt, and we want this to be a start in that, that we want people to say, I'm really struggling. I'm struggling this, in this area. Yes, I've, I've even talked about suicide, and through these three weeks, when we'll come back to some of the things that we've talked about next week and the week after, but really what we want to see is the stigma and the shame and the guilt broken, and today is really just a start. <laughs> As you leave, every one of you will be given one of these leaflets. It says, let's talk about mental health. It's got some helpline number here, and then it's got some other numbers on the back that you can get help. Our encouragement is that you will talk to someone. If you can't talk to a friend, then pick up the phone or do whatever you need to, um, to get some help. And we're not gonna put these on a pile at the back and say, please help yourself if you want one, because who's gonna go and take it in front of other folks? So that is why we're giving everyone one as they leave tonight so that everybody has to take it and then we can take it home with us. Before I say thanks to Sue, Sue, is there hope? There is hope. I've survived and God is good. He's never let me down. He is all I have. And just to read the verse that I didn't have this morning, if I can get my phone to work. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, and then it goes on. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And yeah, there is hope. Um, just 
a PS. Pete never took, uh, he took medication maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. I don't know because he came off them because it, they upset him in his tummy. Medication is not anti-God, it's not anti-Bible, it's not anti-scriptural. Some people need it. And if you need it, take it. My daughter this year in February fell apart. She was a mess. I had to go and stay with her for two weeks. She'd come off her medication and she had crashed and she was a mess. She was like in a fetus on the floor, just a mess. She couldn't go on. And I sat with her during that time and I loved her through that time. She got into scripture. She spoke scripture over herself, she sang and she worked through that because she had to get back on the medication and it had to get back into her system until she came right. She's an amazing girl. She's a fantastic, gifted teacher. But she needs the medication in order to function in this world. This world is broken. So don't not take the medication. So, on behalf of everyone here this evening, as I said this morning. Thank you. You're brave. You're gutsy. Thank you for telling your story and for being so open and vulnerable with us. Let's thank Sue. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.